Hey, I want to begin this morning with a short poem about a little boy. He has his mother's eyes, his father's chin, his auntie's nose, his uncle's grin, his great aunt's hair, his grandma's ears, his grandpa's mouth, so it appears. Poor little tot, well may he moan, he hasn't much to call his own. And none of us do, really. We all inherit features from our parents. In fact, some of you may look a lot more like your mom and dad than you care to admit. You know, a lot of people say, I have my father's chin. Both of them. Whenever my daughter comes to church, folks are shocked to see how much she looks like her mom. Something my daughter should take as an incredible compliment. But whether it's a dad's height or a mom's hair or a grandpa's nose, everyone inherits a few traits from their parents. And this is especially true for a child of God. In fact, there's one trait that all God's kids inherit from their heavenly father. A believer's birthmark is love. In John 13, verse 35, Jesus pointed out that his followers would be identified not by their doing nor by their debating, but by their love for one another. And this is what Peter affirms here in verses 22 and 23 of chapter 1. He says, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again. Notice this phrase, born again. Ever heard this phrase, born again? In the 1970s, Watergate conspirator Charles Coulson chronicled his conversion to Christ in a book he titled, Born Again. In the 1976 presidential campaign, Jimmy Carter referred to himself as a born-again Christian, further popularizing the term. Sadly, though, in recent years, the term born-again Christian has become sort of a media code word for evangelical conservatism. A political persuasion. This isn't at all what Jesus meant when he told Rabbi Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nor is it what John or Peter or the early church meant by the term. No, the phrase born again refers to God's greatest miracle. The one that he works every day all around the world in the hearts of people who trust in him. The Bible also refers to this miracle by terms like regeneration or new birth. Here's what happens. One moment my spirit is dark and cold and hopeless and helpless and void. But the seed of God's Word is sowed in my heart. A gentle watering takes place of conviction and repentance. I believe and in the first instant of faith, that seed breaks open with the life of God's Spirit at work in my spirit. It's a spiritual germination. It occurs in me. The seed breaks open and releases life and light and love. The initial budding of spiritual life in my heart shapes me forever. It forever shapes who I am. I am born again with the Father's love, by the Spirit's power, with the Son's character. Wow, what an incredible miracle to be born again.
I'm sure you know that the foods that you eat today are not always what they seem. Our supermarkets today are full of vegetables on steroids. Many of the groceries in the produce section have been genetically altered. Scientists can now grow corn and tomatoes with built-in pesticides. Rather than spray the chemicals on the skin of the plant, the poison is inbred in the tomato, which really bugs me, by the way. There was always some sense of security that you could just wash the tomato off before you ate it. That's no longer the case. The DNA of squash and cucumbers and grapes have now been altered to resist disease. It's made life easier for the farmers. A sick squash is a thing of the past. Cucumbers no longer get into a pickle. Grapes no longer whine. You know, potato DNA can be engineered now to absorb less oil and produce leaner french fries. Coffee beans can be manipulated to produce less caffeine. Peas now have a longer shelf life. Peppers are resistant to fungus. Which reminds me, what did Miss Mold say to Mr. Algae? Boy, you're a real fun guy. That's an old joke. But you laughed, which encourages me. Today's geneticists, they, they breed for specific purposes. But this is what God has been doing for ages. He breeds into believers godliness and love. When you give your life to Jesus spiritually, you're born anew. You receive a new nature, divine DNA. Love and godly traits are birthed in your spirit. The Father in heaven makes you and he marks you as his child. Here Peter tells us in verse 22, Jesus engineered into you purity and love. In coming to Jesus, you purified your soul and you gained a sincere love. And know this. The reason that some Christians struggle to walk victoriously in their life is that they underestimate what happened to them at their birth. They don't realize the dynamic implied in Peter's phrase, born again. Think of it this way. In the 1950s, the U.S. government experimented with nuclear weapons. Bombs were detonated out in the deserts of New Mexico. And you've probably seen the newsreel footage. A massive explosion clears out a huge crater and then it pushes a mushroom cloud of nuclear fallout up into the air. This is how you should think of the new birth. The miracle of the new birth. Imagine a spiritual detonation inside your heart. This detonation clears out my sin and my selfishness and my pride. It digs deep within me. It uproots layers of sinful buildup that have accumulated over the years. It carves out a crater of holiness. Peter recalls how the new birth purified his soul. But along with that inward impact, it also pushes upward a flume of fallout, a sincere love for the brethren, Peter says. The work of the Spirit purifies deep into my spirit, but then it pushes an upward love for God and a love for other people. 
And here's the Christian's response to this explosive miracle that God works in our hearts. We go with the flow. Peter tells us that our souls have been purified and we've been given a sincere love. Now, he says, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Use what you've been given. Go deeper now. Reach further now. You see, none of us are capable of purifying ourselves or manufacturing a true love for our brethren. But purity and love have been worked into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. He's birthed those things inside us. Now, what God has done for us, we need to continue to do for Him. We need to jump on the bandwagon, so to speak. We need to go with the flow and cooperate with what the Spirit has already done within us. You see, a strategic factor in the success of any endeavor is called momentum. Momentum is seizing the moment. It's riding a wave of confidence. It's getting into the groove of a successful activity. It's quickly building on prior successes. Today at Augusta National, the winner of the tournament is going to receive a coveted green jacket. Not, not many people can say their pastor owns one of these green jackets. I hope you know that. But the master's low score today won't necessarily belong to the best golfer. You see, the green jacket will go to the golfer who takes advantage of the momentum. In fact, the last three champions were relative no-names who caught fire at the right time. It wasn't just ability, but momentum that keyed their success. And this is true in the Christian life, in following the master. None of us can muster up purity and love. It takes a miracle from God to birth these things in our heart. We must be born again. But the victorious Christian is the one who takes advantage of this momentum, who then continues in love and in purity. And how do we seize this spiritual momentum? Peter points us back to the seed that sprouted the change. What is God's change agent? Notice verse 23. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the Word of God which lives and abides forever. In keeping with our explosion analogy, the blast that causes this depth and purity, that releases this mushroom cloud of love, it's detonated by God's Word. You see, the Bible is the fuse. It's the charge. It's the spark that ignites the fires of faith. God's Word is the spiritual explosive that generates purity and love. Understand, the book that you hold in your hand this morning is the most effective, it is the most powerful change agent known to mankind. It has unlimited potential to convict and correct and comfort and convert men from their wicked ways. The Bible can take a cold and calloused heart and set it on fire with a passion for God. Mahatma Gandhi was a Hindu, but he was familiar enough with the Bible to rebuke the Christians of his day. He said, you Christians have in your keeping a document with enough dynamite in it to blow the whole of civilization to bits, to turn society upside down, 
to bring peace to this war-torn world. But you read it as if it were just good literature and nothing else. And he was right. The Bible is no mere book. It's spiritual seed. Peter says it's incorruptible seed. He says, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus told a parable. A farmer goes out and he sows seed in four different types of soil. He, he throws the seed out on hard ground. And then he throws some seed out on shallow ground. Then on thorny ground, then finally some of the seed lands on fertile ground. The seed that fell on the hard dirt was eaten by the birds before it could actually grow. The seed that was tossed in the shallow soil never really took root and was scorched by the summer sun. The seed that fell among the thorns got choked out. Only the seed that landed on the fertile, moist, nutritious soil yielded a bumper crop. Well, Jesus goes on to explain this parable. He says the seed is God's Word. And the soils are conditions of the human heart. Some people are hard-hearted. They have stony hearts. They're resistant to change. Other people are insincere and superficial. They say one thing but mean another. Still others get distracted by the things of this world. But there are folks who are humble and repentant and filled with faith. And when God's word lands in such hearts, a miracle takes place. Spiritual life sprouts and buds and begins to grow. In the remainder of our text, Peter is going to teach us three truths about the seed of God's word. Three truths about the Bible. He's going to tell us that God's word is the living word. It is the enduring word. And it is the nourishing word. You see, if you're a Christian, God has done a miracle in you. But to seize that momentum, to fuel the fire and live in victory, you need to center your life around the living, enduring, nourishing Word of God. Now notice first, the Bible is God's living Word. There is life in this book. The Bible is not just good literature, it is alive. In Proverbs 6, verse 22, Solomon is discussing God's commandments and he tells us, when you awake, they will speak to you. He's saying the Bible talks to you. It's a talking book. Do, do you remember the talking books that some of us had as kids? You, could not, you not only were able to read the book, but there was like a little cord, a little string, and you could pull the string like this, and, and the book would talk to you as well. Do, do you remember this vaguely in your distant past? This is what happens, though, when you read your Bible. Its author speaks to you. The Bible comes alive. It reaches out to you. It touches you. It impacts you in personal ways. It was Martin Luther who said, The Bible is alive and it speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. This is why some of you come up to me after the sermon and say, Pastor Sandy, why did you speak just to me today? 
Don't you know there are other people here that deserve to hear a sermon relevant to them? Well, that's because the Bible is alive. It speaks to us. It's a talking book. It's like any other book. It has a power all its own. It has internal combustion. This is why God calls his word a seed. You see, seed encapsulates life. Then it releases that life wherever it's planted and nurtured and allowed to grow. Seeds hold the DNA, the codes and the secrets of life. A seed reproduces itself and God reproduces his life in us through the seed of Scripture. In John 6, verse 63, Jesus said, The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. Paul adds in 2 Timothy 3, 16, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And I love that word, inspiration. In the Greek, it's the word theonoustos. It's a compound word. Theos means God. Noustos means breathed. The Bible is God-breathed. God exhaled it into the men who wrote it down on the pages. This is why I say the Bible is the only living, breathing book. I heard of two college roommates once. One was a Christian and one was a Muslim. The two men became friends. But neither of the two men knew much about each other's religion. Before long, they agreed to exchange books. The Muslim would read the Bible while the Christian would read the Quran. Well, after several weeks, the Muslim, he, he became convicted and convinced of the truth of Christianity. He became a follower of Jesus. And yet he went and he found his Christian friend. And he approached him shaking the Bible in his hand. And he kept saying, it's not fair. It's not fair. And that's when the man pointed to Hebrews 4 verse 12, where the Bible says it's living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. The former Muslim reflected on his conversion. He says, the Quran is just a book. The Bible is a living book. I'm not going back. But it wasn't even fair. Hey, compare the Bible to every other religious book, and it's not a fair fight. The Bible has an advantage. It's more than a mere book. It's God's living book. The Bible is the living word, but is also God's enduring word. Peter refers to the Bible here in verse 23. He says, The word of God, which lives and abides forever, because, and here he quotes Isaiah 40, All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. The Bible is a seed, but not of a corruptible variety. It's incorruptible. You see, from the moment that you're born, you begin to die. Our flower starts to fade the instant we begin to bloom. I'm sorry to tell you that, but it's just true. Here's an old Yiddish proverb. A grandmother becomes feeble. Her grown daughter gives her a wooden bowl that trembling hands cannot break. The old woman dies and the bowl is discarded, but the granddaughter retrieves it. The bowl, she knows, will be needed again. It'll be needed for her. She'll need this bowl one day. 
because she's going to get old and she's eventually going to die. Scientists don't understand the mystery of aging, but they've developed all kinds of theories. They've noticed that normal human cells grow in tissue cultures and they reproduce for many generations and then suddenly, without explanation, they begin to degenerate and then die. It's as if human cells are pre-programmed to die. It's as if death has been written into the genetic code and embedded in our DNA. And if you've read the Bible, that comes as no surprise. God told us the wages of sin would be death. Apparently, human seeds or cells have a built-in time clock which shut down at a predetermined point. Human seed is corruptible seed. It eventually deteriorates. Physically, you were born to die. Yet spiritually, you have been born again to live forever. For God's Word is incorruptible seed. The life it produces lasts forever. It yields eternal life. Peter quotes Isaiah here, All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. Oh, the grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Life has a flower's fragility. It's as temporal as the grass. Your life, my friend, is a shooting star. It's seen for a moment, and then it's gone. Like cut roses. We flower a few days, and then we wither, and we die. And like cut roses, it probably costs us 50 bucks. One of the most powerful visuals I've ever seen occurred at a funeral I attended. After preaching this powerful sermon, the pastor, he walked down off of the platform to escort the casket up the aisle. But before he, he did, he, he walked over to the casket and he grabbed three or four of the flower petals that were on the arrangement that adorned the top of the casket. He just ripped off these flowers and he held them up in his hand and then he crunched them. He crushed them in his clenched fist. And then he threw them down in the altar of the church and he shouted this verse, The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Life is fragile and fleeting. The wisdom and opinions of men are fickle and foolish, but God's word is strong and steady and true and lasting. If you need an anchor in this life, you need to attach yourself to the Word of God. You and I need to base our lives on God's enduring Word. You know, over the centuries, countless attacks have been aimed at your Bible. In 303 AD, the Roman Emperor Diocletian, he issued a threefold edict. First, he ordered the destruction of all churches. Second, the burning of all Bibles. And third, all professing Christians were stripped of their basic civil liberties. Christians at the time were worried about the future of their new movement. Could Christianity survive under such conditions? And yet how quickly the tide changed. Diocletian's successor, the Emperor Constantine, himself became a Christian. He, he granted his newfound faith favored status. Constantine even commissioned Rome's finest scribes to produce 50 new copies of the Bible. 
Ironically, the project was paid for with money from Diocletian's treasury. You've probably heard of the French skeptic Voltaire, a, a vehement opponent of Christianity. In 1738, Voltaire predicted that in 25 years, the Bible would be a forgotten book. Yet 40 years after his death, in 1778, the Geneva Bible Society purchased Voltaire's home to use as a place to print and store Bibles. It's been said the Bible is an anvil that has broken many hammers. People try to pound it and pick at it and pulverize it, but the Bible just prevails. Author Bernard Ram once said, A thousand times over, the death knell of the Bible has been sounded. The funeral procession formed, the inscription cut on the tombstone, the committal read, but somehow the corpse never stays put. No other book has been so chopped, knifed, sifted, scrutinized, and vilified, yet the Bible lives on. It's indestructible. The Bible's endurance is proof of its divine authorship. Emperors and popes and kings have attacked it. These men are now dead. Yet the Bible lives and it thrives. It was Napoleon who said, The Bible is no mere book, but a living creature with a power that conquers all that oppose it. Jesus said it best in Luke 16, verse 17. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle or stroke of the law to fail. The Bible conquers all. It's God's enduring word. When all else fails, the Word of God will remain. You know, the Bible is history's number one bestseller. But if you wanted to go out this morning and purchase a book off the New York Times bestseller list, you'd be better off to wait a few days. You'll eventually find it on the bargain table somewhere for a lot less than today's asking price. Why? Because human ideas become dated and trendy and faddish. They lack substance and staying power. Only the Bible's wisdom endures. Psalm 19 verse 10 refers to God's word as sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Oh, the Bible is sweet. It brings a sweetness and a satisfaction to the human soul. But there's another reason the psalmist uses this comparison. Did you know that honey is the only food that doesn't spoil? It never spoils. Human philosophies and formulas and theories, they come and go. But God's Word is always relevant. Believe it, obey it, and it will fuel your faith. And here's one more point about God's enduring Word. As I mentioned earlier, human cells have a built-in timer that, that eventually causes us to die. Well, I believe the seed of God's Word also has a delayed effect. Scripture is like a time-release capsule. It doesn't just go off and do all its work immediately. Like a bomb on a timer, a verse of Scripture spoken into someone's life ticks, ticks, ticks. You wait and wait. Then in God's predetermined timing, suddenly this verse explodes in the heart where it's been planted. God tells us in Isaiah 55 verse 11, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. In other words, the word works. 
You see, some of you have sowed God's seed in the heart of people you love. You've sowed the seed of the word in your husband's heart or in your teenager's heart or in your co-worker's heart. You've put the word there. You've sowed it. You've shared scripture with the people you love. But you've become discouraged because you don't see anything happening. You don't see it working. You assume that all your efforts have been in vain. But today it's time to rein in those feelings and reject that notion. And I'll tell you why. Jesus promises that His Word will never return void. When the time is right, something will happen. Suddenly, God's Word will explode in that person's mind. It might be a verse you shared 10 years ago. You sowed it 10 years ago, but the Spirit will use it at just the right moment, in just the right way. In so many ways, God's Word is His enduring Word. And then finally, understand the Word of God is the nourishing Word. Notice chapter 2 begins, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all guile, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Peter speaks here of a newborn baby's thirst for the pure milk. brought a top 10 list with me this morning. These are always good. If I don't say so myself. Here are the top 10 funny sayings found on baby bibs and t-shirts. Top 10 funny things found on baby bibs and baby t-shirts. Number 10. Dangerous when wet. Number nine, I'm the new boss. Number eight, party at my crib, 2 (laughs) a.m. Number seven, I'm my parents' vacation souvenir. (laughs) Number six, daddy's little tax deduction. Number five, I do not suffer in silence. Number four, smell something. Number three, no hair day. Number two, my parents have no rhythm. (laughs) And then number one, got milk. Hey, there's one common characteristic of all babies. They love milk. Yeah, you ever seen a baby at feeding time? Its little mouth starts to root. It eagerly and aggressively starts searching for the nipple. Nothing is more important for the baby at that moment than satisfying its own hunger. And this is the diligence that newborn babes, even older Christians, need to show toward the study of God's Word. We need to hunger and thirst for biblical truth. Why? Because the Bible is God's nourishing Word. It is the key to your spiritual health. You see, milk is the baby's only food because it is the baby's perfect food. It strengthens bones and teeth. It provides calcium and vitamin D and protein to the body. It helps develop immunity to disease and allergies. Milk even benefits the brain. 
And likewise, the pure milk of God's Word has a similar effect on our spiritual health. Peter says in verse 2, that you may grow thereby. Faith is fueled and fortified by a daily diet of God's Word. Are you in the Word on a day-to-day basis? If not, why not? Learning the truth of Scripture helps us spot the lies of the enemy. God's nourishing Word builds an immunity to deception and temptation. The Bible has all the nutrients a Christian needs to grow and develop a successful spiritual life. This is why we need to be diligent in our study of the Scriptures. See, a baby doesn't have to be taught its need for milk. He doesn't have to be coaxed to suckle his mother's breast or or even take the formula from a bottle. This is intuitive knowledge for a baby. It's the baby's natural desires. And likewise, a new Christian needs to understand their dependence on the milk of God's Word. The Bible is the perfect formula for spiritual growth. If you've been born again, you'll have this natural hunger for God's milk. You know, every mother knows the only time a baby doesn't eat is when he or she gets sick. And this is true of a believer in Jesus. You know, our major deterrent to God's Word is our sin. It's our sin that stunts our natural hunger for the Scriptures. You could say a person won't run to God's Word if they're on the run from God. This is why diligence for God's Word is often demonstrated by what we're willing to set aside to seek after it and to spend time in the Scriptures. This is what Peter says in verse 1, laying aside. See, before you pick up the Bible, you first have to lay aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all evil speaking as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word. If you're harboring bitterness and hatred in your heart, if you're denying the truth about yourself or your situation, if you're preaching one thing and yet practicing another, the opposite, if you're jealous of another person's blessings, if you're gossiping, notice Peter doesn't say, if you're tempted, or if you feel overcome, or if you're empty, or if you're fearful, or if you're lonely. Honest admissions of weakness only stir up our hunger for God's Word. Sincerity draws us to the Scriptures. It's the secrecy and the deceitful sins and the hypocritical sins and the stubbornness. That's what suppresses our desire for God's Word. My wife is a great cook. Great cook. You can probably tell. She's sort of a female emerald. She told me last night she's more like Paula Dean. I didn't know who Paula Dean was. But she serves up some delicious meals. But if every night on my way home I stopped by Burger King and picked out on a couple of Whoppers, it doesn't matter how gourmet my wife's cooking might be, I wouldn't benefit from her dishes. If you fill up on junk food, you're not going to be interested in the good stuff. And the same is true spiritually. You're never going to cultivate this hunger for God's Word, even the living, enduring, nourishing Word, if you keep stuffing your mind with the world's junk and clutter. The old saying is true. Either the Bible will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from the Bible. 
If at one time you were hungry for Scripture, but now that hunger has dissipated, here's a suggestion for you. Turn off the television and lay aside the novel. Here, Here may be the tough one. Lay off Facebook or computer games or unplug the DVD. Do whatever it takes to to eliminate the distractions and then open your Bible. Limit your diet. Reserve your heart for the things of God. And guess what? That hunger will begin to grow again. It's these other things that are stifling and squelching that natural hunger. I think the biggest culprit that stunts our hunger for God's Word is pride. You know, try handling your life on your own. Assume you don't need anyone else's help. And you're going to lack motivation to open your Bible and seek the truths of God. Pride suppresses our natural hunger for the Scriptures. And I think this is why Peter adds the caveat here in verse 3. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, grace is the antidote for prideful deception." Grace is God's unmerited favor and fortitude. Grace is the love and the healing and the forgiveness and the strength and the courage and the willpower that are not our own. Grace is the opposite of pride. It produces a total and a Godward dependence. Develop a taste for grace and nothing else will satisfy. The truths of God become tasty again when you humble yourself and renounce your pride and develop a taste for grace. Let me share one more thought with you. This is why I do what I do. When I stand and deliver God's Word week after week, I am sowing seed. And I know, I've learned, it might not sprout today or next week, but eventually it accomplishes God's purposes. I've been doing this for 30 years now, and I've never been let down. I've never been disappointed. The Spirit of God will use the Word of God in powerful and in wonderful ways. You see, here's what happens to people who sit under biblical teaching for any length of time. They either change or they get convicted and split. No one goes unaffected. The Bible forces you off the fence. Most of you have been born again. Through precious blood and incorruptible seed, God made you pure and filled you with His love. Now it's time for you to seize that momentum and continue in love and in purity. And we do so by laying aside the hindrances, the things that get in our way, by developing a taste for God's grace and by taking heed to the living, enduring, nourishing Word of God. Hey, we will resemble the Master if we continue in purity and in love and in truth.